Welcome to the Vanguard Indo-Pacific VIP podcast, an official production of the Consortium of Indo-Pacific Researchers devoted to exploring the pressing issues, history, and future of the Indo-Pacific region writ large, stretching from the western shores of the Americas to East Africa and from Antarctica to the Arctic and encompassing everything therein. Our episodes feature interviews, panel discussions, and reflections of key thinkers, practitioners, policy makers, and others engaged in the region, covering a wide array of topics including but not limited to geopolitics, defense issues, geoeconomics, diplomacy, disinformation, culture, and more. Now celebrating its first anniversary, the Consortium of Indo-Pacific Researchers brings together academicians, think tankers, military officers, policy wonks, and others interested in Indo-Pacific matters, producing publications and social media content, presenting at international fora, and collaborating with other like-minded institutions throughout the Indo-Pacific and beyond to bring scholarship on the region to decision-makers, military leaders, scholars, and others. The views and opinions expressed or implied in the podcast are those of the participants and should not be construed as carrying the official sanction of the consortium or agencies or departments of the U.S. government or their international equivalents. This is the Vanguard Indo-Pacific Podcast. A very warm welcome to our listeners. You are listening to... Uh, the Journal of Indo-Pacific's uh, Affairs podcast, and we are very proud to have with us today Colonel Naresh Astuti. I'll begin with uh, introducing him. Of course, he needs no introduction, but uh, Colonel Naresh Astuti, he is a retired Indian Army officer who served in the 1965 and 1971 wars. He was commissioned in the Corps of Signals in 1957. He joined the Madras Regiment in 1971 after the Army Chief asked for volunteers to join the infantry and took part in the Bangladesh Liberation War with eight Madrasas in the Jessore Khulna sector. On leaving the Army, he moved to Nigeria where he worked with an MNC for 12 years. He is now settled in Noida, India. He is the author of two very well-received books, The Empirical Universe and Beyond, Looking Beyond the Perceptible World, which is based on his personal experiences and quest to find what lies beyond the perceptible world and the bugle calls a life in the Indian army, which provides a memoir of his rich life in the Indian army. Colonel Rastogi, thank you so much for joining us today. It's an honor to have you with us and we're very excited uh, to have this podcast with you. Shali, thank you very much. I'm so grateful for all the kind words that you have spoken about me. I enjoy it. And uh, I mean, and also I'm grateful to you and to your consortium. Uh, Dr. Arnest is here, the Dr. Hindu Shah, and Saxena was there. So I'm grateful to all your consortium. And I will try my best to, I mean, put, put across my views and opinions uh, about the questions. Absolutely. So it's our honor to have you. So, sir, um, let me begin quickly with the questions and delve right into the Indo-Pacific, since, of course, we're the consortium of Indo-Pacific members. So, um, you'd agree with me that the Indo-Pacific is emerging as the most contested ocean region in the world. 
So in this context, can you tell us how the army or broadly the military forces basically, what role they have in shaping and ensuring the existence of a rules-based order in the region? It's a very good question. And uh, I would highlight first the importance of the Indo-Pacific and the contestants involved and their models of running. A dream like peaceful, prosperous, rule-based Indo-Pacific, but constantly afflicted by an unleashed tsunami. A frightening scenario, but to dread the worst and work for the best is the guiding uh, motto for the global forces joined in all-round growth and prosperity in the region and beyond. Global domination in terms of trade, culture and governance has been the ambition of China for centuries. Unfortunately for them, these were thwarted by internal disturbances or the external force. Humiliating submission after the opium wars can't be erased from their psyche. Their way of working is subtle and systematic. Enter the Olympian Heights, Olympi Olympian Games after a crash program, preparing them for a large chunk of medals and dominating the stadium since then. Over the years, they have concentrated exclusively on economic growth, attaining a reasonable level, muscle flexing is inevitable. <clears throat> Wealth in its way brings in the budding desire to achieve a status and a global recognition. It is opportune for them to dominate the global arena and contest for the top slot, unmindful unmindful of the adverse effects to other nations. The environment prevailing is in their favor. Numerous countries in Asia and Africa, exploited and weakened over centuries, gained their freedom from imperial rulers. They too nurture a strong desire to modernize and uplift the living standard of the pitiable majority. But where do they find their sources? Corruption and misuse of power grabbed by a handful is the norm. Steady livelihood, good education, proper health care, and nutritious food all evade them. 
the Western powers thought best to leave them alone to their fate. The US, the sole superpower for many decades, felt tired, exhausted, demanding burden sharing, retired into isolation. China caught the charging bulls by horns to ride to supremacy. In 2013, recalling the ancient Silk Road, footprinted by Marco Polo, President Xi Jinping launched the grandiose plan of Belt and Road Initiative, BRI. The plan was simple. Various routes emanating from China would pan out to connect Asia, Europe, and Africa, including the Maritime Sea Route, Maritime Silk Road. The underdeveloped countries need massive investments for their infrastructures and growth, and China needs to accelerate its economic power development and so a war win-win situation for them. The Western powers for extending loans adopt a lengthy procedure, lengthy studies, lengthy consultations. The project would not start till all, all the formalities have been completed. An unacceptable delay indeed. So China stepped in. Simply find out their urgent needs, work out a plan to meet them, extend financial help, technological assistance, and work with time-bound targets to show the results. They would ensure all the contracts were awarded to the Chinese companies. Dollars invested would flow back to them. Their enormous growth continues. The construction companies become the largest globally. Remember, seven out of 10 top global sorts are Chinese. They well knew the soft loans they're beyond their capacity to pay back. No problem. These countries would allow them, would allow China to make unhindered and long-term use of these facilities. China would be compensated far more. Gwalar port in Pakistan is a case study. A little known fishing village in thinly populated Balochistan was selected to establish an ultra modern seaport accompanied with an airport, an industrial zone, a power plant, a highway connecting them to the China Silk Road, and an industrial cluster all along the highway and a fast rail service linking Peshawar and Karachi. A hefty investment 
of $62 billion. And that too, in a country where corruption and governor's apathy dissuaded the foreign investments. This resulted in a consistent 8% growth of the park economy. As anticipated, the payback was not possible. Water port was leased to China for a period of 40 years. A pearl of the Navy in the string laid out in the Indian Ocean to secure the maritime trade. China's growth of impressive economic growth, China's goals of impressive uh, economic growth, poverty alleviation, and maritime security all achieved in one go. Now starts the tussle to usurp the top position, disturbing the equilibrium in the Indo-Pacific. Dr. Galina Chakarova, director of the Austrian Institute for European and Security Policy, AIES, opined that the US is still the sole superpower and China has miles to go. Many conditions need to be met before the crown of the superpower is gained. It's not just the economic uh, growth, but the per capita income too. And China is way behind. Dollar is still the global reserve currency. Though Yuan is valid in many China aided countries. A sizable military force to reach all corners of the globe speedily in an emergency is required. China is limited to some regions only. The dominant position in various global institutions like the UN, the World Bank, the IMF are still occupied, is still occupied by the US. China is managing to build up inroads, especially with the help of Russia. Lastly, the superpower must lay down, along with the consenting partners, the standards, international rules of order and conduct to be followed by all, and to monitor the observance all over the globe. In her considered view, China is still far away, but it is making desperate efforts in conjunction with Russia. Russia is a huge power, the largest nuclear arsenal at its disposal, alas, relegated to a regional power only. The duo, China and Russia, have created strong ripples in the Indo-Pacific, alarming the all-round growth-loving countries like India and Japan. 
In 2007, the JPM Shinzo Abe quoted the phrase Indo-Pacific, the mingling of oceans. Based upon a Persian phrase, Mazma ul Bahrain, coined by Dara Shiko, the Mughal prince with Shia leanings, the Sufi leanings, desirous of the synthesis of Hindu-Muslim culture, raising them to a very high level. In 2013, PM uh, in Nairobi declared the free and open Indo-Pacific enabling the prosperity of all, cooperation cooperation in economic activity, trade and investments, and keep the ocean free for all lawful passage. Economy was the underpin, but political and value dimensions were added when he declared maximum democratic countries to join in though no force to be employed to change any government. Australia, to make use of this concept, but large trading relations with China would not allow, would not allow them to offend. Only when criticism about China and about COVID-19 was made, China suspended the trade relations which are favorable to Australia. So Australia decided to join the Indo-Pacific. <clears throat> India has started the economic reforms in 1991-92, adopting the Look East policy. In 2018, PM Modi in his Shangri-La address reiterated the Indo-Pacific would be free, open, and inclusive. The centrality of Asian nations and the importance of connectivity to be adhered to. The US was a late starter. In 2017, President Trump agreed to use the term Indo-Pacific and he went on to change the name to U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, which is a conceptual framework, not a regional organization with military overtones. The aim is growth and development, sustainable, peaceful means. This is not a military alliance or commitment, but naval exercises like Malabar were invoked for long based on training, cooperation, and sharing technological advances between India and US. Later on, Japan and Australia also joined in, and that is where the feathers of China were ruffled. And the uncontrolled emissions of China, causing disturbance in the Indian Pacific, 
are to be harvested or contained in a peaceful manner by joining up the world powers using their means other than what the main uh, partners are the US, Japan, India, and Australia. So, as I said, the military uh, force, I mean, the use of military force is not on the horizon, but we are prepared for it. Thank you so much, sir. I think it was a very, very interesting take on how uh, the balance of power equations in the region has been changing and even the historical evolution of the region. So I think that provides a very, very interesting backdrop for our listeners. So thank you so much for that. Uh, sir, I'd like to narrow down a little bit uh, on India, since you first mentioned India uh, within the Indo-Pacific construct. Um, I think you'd agree with me that India is increasingly embracing its maritime um, identity and refocusing its attention towards the Indo-Pacific. But we've also seen that the continental threats which come from neighboring Pakistan and China have remained quite imminent. So in this context, how do you think India should balance the maritime threats, that the, the military threats that it's facing from the maritime and the continental domain? Or do you think New, New, New Delhi should prior, prioritize one over the other? So what would be your take on this? I fully agree with you that we are certainly threatened both from the continental as well as maritime domains. The maritime threat may not be apparent immediately, but it looms large. Most of our energy, uh, energy supply and trade depends on maritime security. The Indian Navy, along with the long-reaching uh, long arms of the Indian force, is alert, adequately sized, and well-equipped. Modernization is a continuous process. We can look after our borders, both land and sea. In the words of the famous uh, former naval chief, Admiral Arun Prakash, a clear-eyed vision is behind the Chinese maritime buildup. We in India have neither the economic uh, wherewithal nor any need to compete. However, he stressed, we have adequate naval capability to safeguard our vital interests. It is well known that China wants to become a great maritime power going beyond BRI and the maritime silk road. The satellite picture reveals the Chinese military facility at the UAE port of Khalifa. We also know the importance of overseas bases for guarding our seaborne trade. Our work towards the diamond necklace and circling the stinger pulse of China is proceeding well. We are teaming up with the like-minded countries to make use of the facilities of them 
in the Indian and the Pacific Oceans. But it is not a military alliance I as he confirmed. At the same time, we are following a holistic plan for shipbuilding by modernizing and upgrading the existing docks and shipyards. Our naval forces have a three-dimensional capability for the control of the seas. And many ports, especially Indian Ocean, are there uh, to operate from to increase our range. Admiral Robin Thorne, another former naval chief, elucidates further. The Indian Ocean is a global economy highway. 60% of the world oil, 50% of the container shipments, 33% of the bulk cargo passing through here links us up with the Asian countries, China, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, Pacific Islands. With 7,516 kilometers of uh, coastline and 1,384 islands and islets, and EEZ, Exclusive Economy Zone, extending to 2 million, 2 million square kilometers. We are aware of the maritime resources and challenges. The government has initiated a comprehensive four-pillar policy to upgrade the naval forces. Port modernization, increasing efficient and speedy, speedy traffic handling, provide continuity to reduce logistics costs, cut down delay by, by cheaper, safer, and cleaner transportation using the inland waterways. Port-led industrialization by establishing coastal economy zones. And lastly, shipbuilding industries, both for naval and merchant uh, vessels, progressing towards self-reliance called Atmanirbhar Bharat, along with indigenization, a much needed special scheme for ships has been developed and is manufactured here in our country in sufficient quantity. The emphasis is on fisheries also, ports and other facilities modernized and the living conditions of the fishermen in the coastal areas improved. Emphasis on the green field projects to marine tourism following the sustainable development norms with minimum impact on the environment. Thus, you will see economy and strategy have been combined, complying with the rule-based international order 
keeping in mind the sovereignty, ter territorial integrity, and equality of all nations, and contributing to the green uh, uh, economy or the green uh, environments. Sea rails for us are the pathways to prosperity and to peace. The Indian Navy has, <clears throat> has enunciated the strategy for deterrence, for conflict, and for shaping favorable, positive environment. So, in my view, our, border, our maritime borders are in safe hands. So now coming to the land aspects, I'm giving uh, these uh, little bit detail just to uh, bring out the uh, our preparations and our uh, situation of currently. China is beating down our neck from the forcibly occupied region in Ladakh. And Pakistan is bent upon a thousand cuts to bleed us. But suffice to say, the present government is very much aware of it and going out of its way to modernize and strengthen the armed forces and the paramilitary forces. The protection of boundary is paramount. The matter of our uh, uh, the matter of our armed forces is exceptionally high. I I will bring it out, referring to my experiences in the short wars with Pakistan. In 1965, Saturday Rift Park Armor Division was blown to smithereen and the command <coughs> chain was immobilized. The key factor was the training, valor, and patriotism of our soldiers. I was at the vantage point accompanying the indomitable commander, Brigadier David Chibu, throughout the war. All troops stand shoulder to shoulder, unmindful of caste, creed, religion, with one flame burning in their heart. Sacrifice the life, but keep the flag flying high and the nation safe. CQMH, Company Quartermaster Holder, Abdul Hamid, was awarded PVC Paramir Chak posthumous, the highest decoration in the face of enemy, in the face of the enemy, for his exceptional courage when he destroyed four second tanks at a very close range with his coilless anti-tank gun mounted on a jeep. Surgical strikes deep in Pakistan and unarmed neck breaking 
of the misadventurous Chinese soldiers from the Himalayan heights have sent strong signals. Our motto is simple and straightforward. The safety and honor of our country is of prime importance. The care of our men and colleagues come next. Our own safety, ease and comfort come last. During the separate surrender ceremony held at Khulna, those days East Pakistan, on 17 December 71, one part JCO, the junior commission officer, whispered to me, Saab, give us your junior officers. We would make the best invincible army in the world. So it just shows men count for victory more than machines. And our army is prepared for it. The next point I would bring out is the point of democracy. A soldier knows he's fighting for his country, conforming to the will of people, not for the idiosyncrasies of the dictators or the military rulers. It is a righteous war, part of his ordained duties. His sacrifice would not go in vain. The tricolor draped coffin would be honored, would be honored and saluted throughout the country, throughout the country. Whereas sticking to their denial mode, the bodies they refused to be accepted by Pakistan or buried armas by China. So I'm fully confident that we are capable of looking after our land at the sea borders, especially when the people, the government, and the armed forces are all acting in unison. Thank you so much, sir, for that answer. And uh, I do take this opportunity, of course, to pro for uh, providing the insightful, inside view of what happens uh, into securing our country. So thank you so much for that. Um, so I, I'd like to bring the discussion back uh, to the Indo-Pacific a little bit. And um, in this context, I'd like to hear your views on how India's increased activism and participation in the Indo-Pacific, especially with the United States, impacting Pakistan's strategic behavior. So do you think Pakistan's increased security cooperation with Russia and China, as we've been seeing in recent times, is it a response to the increased maritime cooperation between United States and India? The Indo-Pacific, how the four countries have, have joined together, but as I emphasized earlier, not militarily. They have joined together the US, India, Japan, and Australia. And we share many uh, domains, leaving aside the war aspect of it. But we are joining in the armed forces level, in the economic level, in the political level, in the development level, 
and in various uh, domains and in various activities. But talking about the strategic uh, uh, lessons and the impact on uh, Pakistan, to my mind, the generals planned the war, uh, World War II based upon the experiences and lessons learned from the World War I. Unfortunately, these did not work. Just a minute. Could you repeat the question, please? Uh, so my the my question was that India's increased participation in the Indo-Pacific, uh, in collusion with the United States working together, how is that impacting Pakistan's strategic behavior? And if the increased cooperation between China and Russia and Pakistan, as we've been seeing in recent times, is it a, a response to this increased cooperation between India and United States? Pakistan has no doubt been unhappy with our enhanced strategic engagement with the US and they have deep linkages with the West, especially with the military establishments. During the Afghan crisis, America depended heavily upon Pakistan. Even now, the US appears to be of the opinion that Pakistan is a solution rather than a problem in the Afghanistan scenario. Indeed, bizarre. However, Pakistan has all the other in China. Its relation with Russia may be marginal, but with China-Russia friendship strengthening, they would get the indirect support of Russia. Russia may not forget its relations with us and interfere directly. So, in my view, the Indo-US and other partners teaming up together for keeping the Indo-China safe, rule-based, free passage all along. Pakistan by itself has no worry unless they have some other designs on our borders and our country. 
and then they should be prepared that we are strong enough to take measures but we would also request our partners like china for their help technologically for the latest developments in the weapons and other matters in intelligence satellite intelligence and other uh, cyber security and so on so we'll take all help from them but we are enough to deal with pakistan in case they want to interfere with us so as far as uh, from our side and as i know that from the indo pakistan side or indo pacific side pakistan has no worries they should not worry but only thing is that they are teaming up with china in their nefarious activities so they would be uh, ruffling uh, the waters or the feathers and then i mean uh, what action the other governments like the usa and others would take the china and pakistan also i mean that is another matter right so thank you so much for that uh, so i'd like to probe a little bit further into this um and i would like to hear your views on how how the india us partnership is affecting um us islamabad ties or is it affecting at all how do you see this playing out especially in context of uh, the recently concluded summit of democracy where pakistan was invited so how do you think the um us islamabad uh, dynamics are playing out pakistan no doubt has been unhappy with our enhanced strategic engagement with the us and they have deep uh, linkages with the west especially with the military establishments during the afghan crisis america depended uh, mainly upon pakistan even now Uh, the us appears to be of the opinion that pakistan is a solution rather than a problem for the afghanistan scenario indeed bizarre however pakistan has its all weather friend in china its relations with uh, russia may be marginal but with the china russia friendship strengthening Pak would gain the Russia Russian indirect support. So the match is between the US and Russia, and between the US and China. They both, China and Russia, would would try to bring the US down. Russia is a forceful, uh, a powerful force, and China needs Russian power in Central Asia. and is willing to back up the russian finances both russia and china gain in their adventurism and various regions russia would dare the us and the best europe in crimea kazakhstan and now ukraine it has the tacit approval of china so our strategic links with the us have not much impact on the relations but china and pakistan and even china are spending uh, extending to be a direct problem as to us 
would create a problem for us the strategic level. So, as I said, Pakistan has now become more dependent upon China and the China-Russia getting together. Of course, the ties with uh, US would continue and uh, the relations would still remain the same. And we hope that in the end, some good, uh, good thoughts will appear in their mind and instead of war, they will start thinking of the other peaceful methods for growth and development and raising the standard of their people also, which is required so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Colonel Rastogi. Uh, my next question would be that uh, we are the uh, border challenges with China and Pakistan impeding India's ambition to be a regional player? How do you see that playing out? <clears throat> to my mind, here comes the question of leadership. We have to see our problems objectively, dispassionately, making optimum use of our vast resources, maintaining internal unity and cohesion, obtaining military intelligence, cyber intelligence, and satellite intelligence from our friendly countries. Of course, these challenges of the border and of the maritime keep us fully occupied. But as I have been maintaining that our forces, our government, and our people are fully prepared for it. So the latest technology we are also importing, which is needed for the development developed country, from the developed countries of our partners. All this would ensure that we handle our moral problems efficiently and grow rapidly in economic and military strength using the latest technology. We would be useful partner against the common foe. So as predicted, we should be a major leading global power in the next decade following, and I emphasize, following the rule-based order without any aggressive or expansive intentions. Our motto is very clear, grow and let others grow. Today, on nominal uh, terms, we are the sixth largest economy in the world, soon to reach the bracket of the top three. However, raising the masses above the poverty line and increase the per capita income to a decent level is our main concern. So again, and military strength and economic strength raising us to a global power 
we are on our way and we are and I'm sure we will achieve it. As I said, with all the, <coughs> the, the government, the military power, and the will of power, and will, will of the people, all matching together. Right, thank you so much. And I completely agree with you. And I think your answer just hit the nail on the head. It's absolutely perfect, Chris. Um, that brings me to uh, the last question that I have prepared for you. And um, uh, it, it, it's coming back to the Indo-Pacific and I'm talking specifically now about Quad. So been a lot, there's been a lot of talk about the Quad and there have been some commentators who have even called it the Asian NATO. So how do you view India's participation in the Quad? Um, and how do you view Quad in itself? And how do you think Quad can be best shaped to address India's needs and concerns while at the same time retaining the interest of the other three partners or attract other nations under the Quad Plus framework? How do we move from just mere dialogue to operationalization of the Quad while retaining the unity that it currently has? Dragon, defied and deliberately challenge the internationally accepted norms, standard rules, and it is a great threat for the Indo-Pacific and beyond. Further, it has raised international border and trade disputes with many. Knowing its ulterior motives, our aim is to contain China in the early stages only by strong, sending strong signals, but refrain from going to the war. Because we know, especially the armed forces know, the gravity and the devastation caused by a war. We have experienced it personally. So now coming back to the Indo-Pacific and the Quad, a little bit of history. In 2004, tsunami had ravaged many countries, causing death and devastation at an unimaginable level. All the global forces joined in to provide them rescue and relief. Many military formations and units were pressed into immediate humanitarian service using cargo ships, transport planes, and helicopters. Especially the four major powers joined hands India, Japan, the US, and Australia. And they formed an, an, an ad hoc group for an efficient and immediate service. Once the job was done, the group dissolved. But it was soon realized that willing global powers could join hands 
to meet various contingencies without entering into some alliance or part of a treaty. At the same time, the US and India had been participating in combined naval exercises called Malabar, mainly to improve cooperation, training, and share the latest technological advances. Japan and Australia too joined in along with some other nations. And this led to the discomfiture of China, prompting it to label the group as the Asia NATO. But I reiterate the Quad is not a military alliance and has no military objectives in mind. The Quad, beginning with the deliberations at a lower level, soon reached the summit held on March 12, 2021. The declaration, the joint declaration emphasized the global challenges like Wuhan virus, COVID-19, could well be addressed jointly. For this purpose, India was asked to supply 1 billion vaccines to the Indo-Pacific by the end of the current year. The latest American technology, Japanese uh, finance, Indian production capacity and Australian logistics handling have been combined efficiently to achieve the immediate results. Similarly, other issues like emerging new technologies, infrastructure development in the Indo-Pacific, cyber security, space security, and many other issues have been combined for a joint action. The message is loud and clear. The global powers, in order to face the threats and handle emergencies arising globally, could get together without going, without going into military alliances. Whether China would pay heat with these signals is another matter. Here, I would like to draw the attention to Mr. Hitler. I again say Mr. Hitler. After the humiliating defeat of Germany in the World War I, he was hailed as the savior of Germany. The appeasement policy followed and the consequences of the devastation of the Second World War are well known. Realizing the grandiose ambitions of Xi Jinping, global powers may unite together. Thus, exercise some check and control over his aggressive plans. At the same time, 
they lived on the same Chinese intelligentsia. They also put some control on his burning ambitions. Even threatened his chair to make it insecure. In my view, the field is wide open. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Colonel Rasogi. I can't, uh, it, it, uh, especially with regard to your last answer, and I think uh, it really captures just how India has also retained uh, the autonomy of decision-making. And the, when you said that uh, it's provided a model where cooperation can take place outside the framework of military alliance, I think that's extremely interesting. And I'm sure our listeners uh, will find that equally interesting. So uh, with this, uh, I thank you once again for taking the time out and being a part of this podcast. I had a wonderful experience. I've learned a lot from your interactions. And I encourage all our listeners to definitely read uh, Colonel Rastogi's book, where he discusses these intricate, um, the incidents of his life and how his experiences have shaped his views. It's discussed in detail in his book. And I encourage all our listeners definitely to go read them. So thank you so much uh, once again, Colonel Rastogi. And, uh, thank you very much, Ashita. I enjoyed the uh, interview. And to my best ability, I have put across my views of opinions. Thank you so much. I'm grateful. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Vanguard Indo-Pacific podcast a product of the Consortium of Indo-Pacific Researchers. Be sure to visit the Consortium's website at indo-pacificresearchers.org. Follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Join us again for other episodes of the podcast. <laughs>